Welcome to the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast, powered by Christianity Today. I'm J.R. Briggs, and if you're a regular listener to the podcast, you know that my co-host, Doug, is currently resting, being rejuvenated, uh, relaxing, and just ultimately being refreshed and, and on sabbatical. And I'm so grateful he gets a chance to do this. Occasionally, we've heard from him throughout this, his sabbatical, and we'll continue to hear from him as well. But sometimes we do individual episodes, and I, I get another opportunity to do that. Earlier on the podcast, I had a chance to sit down with Mark Scandrett, and it was a fantastic conversation. If you haven't heard it, I want to encourage you to stop and listen to that first. That'll help you get some context to understanding Mark and his practice-oriented approach to following Jesus. But in addition to this book that he wrote that we looked at last time, Practicing the Way of Jesus, he and his wife, Lisa, have co-written books together. And uh, Mark, as I mentioned, and Lisa together are co-founders of Reimagine, a center for integral Christian practice. They live in the Mission District of San Francisco, and they have three adult children. So while Mark uh, authored Practicing the Way of Jesus, They've co-authored the book Free, and on this episode, we're going to discuss the book that they co-authored called Belonging and Becoming, Creating a Thriving Family Culture. It is so good. I read it. I passed it off to my wife. I said, you've got to read this. She read it. She found it to be incredibly helpful. In fact, we wrote a bunch of notes in the margin. We dog-eared many pages, and we even wrote several questions down from the book up on our chalk wall, which is in our dining room and used it to discuss it together uh, with our family at dinner time. You're really going to enjoy this conversation with Mark and Lisa Scandrett. Well, one of the things that we haven't talked about much on this podcast is, as especially as it relates to pastors and ministry leaders, is how to lead your family well. And so we want to spend some time on this episode discussing this very important topic We've all heard of very painful stories of pastor's kids uh, who've left the faith entirely because of a bad experience in the home. And for some of us listening to this podcast, that may be your experience with your own children. And so how do we address that? What do we do about that? Uh, There seems to be an extra layer and extra pressure sometimes placed on families in ministries. So we want to address that today. And we're excited to have on today's episode of the Monday Morning Pastor, Mark and Lisa Scandrett to discuss this important topic. So welcome to the podcast, guys. Thanks for having us. Yeah, great to be on, JR. Yeah, we really enjoyed uh, connecting before we pressed uh, record here and some interactions that we've had, what, 15, 20 years ago. So it's good to have you on and so grateful for both of you and the book that you have written, uh, Belonging and Becoming. It's a book that I read and then I said to my wife, we have got to read this together. And so we read that and we have a big chalk wall in our dining room. And uh, so we just began, you asked great questions. I'm a questions fan, and you all just had some fantastic family questions that we just wrote in big block letters from top to bottom, floor to ceiling, that we use for the next several weeks uh, around our dining, dinner room yeah. table, dining room table. So thank you so much for that. Uh, yeah. the gift I, always, given to our I, family. I often say if I could get paid just to write good questions, I'd love it. <laughs> well, maybe we need to talk about that later. That was uh, my doctoral dissertation was on equipping leaders, how to ask better questions yeah. for the sake of the kingdom. So another uh, point of uh, similarity and passion that we share in that. So 
I, I just, I love the way that you all in this book address the important topic right from the start by not assuming too much. And this idea of the questions that you ask, so good at that. And, and this idea of what does a thriving family look like? How do we care for each other? What is a family for? That simple question that you all asked, what is a family for? sent my wife into just about a 45-minute discussion just about that. So um, you use the word thriving throughout the book, and you use this definition, if I can quote you all. You said, a thriving family is a place of belonging and becoming, where each person feels safe, cared for, and loved, and is supported to develop who they are for the good of the world. It's a bit of a mouthful, but I wonder if you can unpack that a little bit more. How did you develop the concept of thriving and this framework of belonging and becoming? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, obviously what we had in mind was <clears throat> the the flourishing that God desires for all of humanity and that family is a primary place where we get to cultivate intentional relationships to pursue life in the kingdom of God, the life that we were created for. Um, I think that in culture there tends to be some notions around family. Like if we're not careful, it's about me and mine and tribalism mm -hmm. and whatever's best for, for us. And so we feel like there's a two-step that we, we seek to belong, to feel safe, cared for, and loved, not just for an end in itself, uh, although those are good, good things to pursue, but because we're made to participate in something bigger than us, to join in what God is doing to see uh, the renewal of all things. And I think sometimes uh, in faith culture, we emphasize the first part and not the second part, or only the second part about what we are for others without attending to um, the, the needs of those closest to us. So what happens... And either one of you, I'm curious, what happens if we only focus on one or the other? How does that become a destructive part of the concept of family? I think if we only focus on the safe, cared for, and loved, we can get kind of inward and mm -hmm. selfish about our place in the world and, and think that all of our decisions are just for us. And um, I think Jesus calls us to something bigger than that. Mm. And I think that you alluded to what happens on the other side. If, if all of our decisions are for the good of the world, um, I think that can be a temptation, especially for people in ministry, um, to forget that the people that we're related to are just as worthy of love and care mm -hmm. as any other person on the planet. And we have a chance of having a greater impact on those people than anybody who walks through the doors of our church or other ministry that we, we have. Like, I, I think families have the opportunity to impact each other so deeply. So um, we wouldn't want to miss the opportunity to do that too. Mm -hmm. I, I think some of this, uh, our passion for this is related to our story. Um, obviously when we were coming up, we saw a lot of particularly ministry families where um, the parents were all about the, 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 the church or ministry that they were involved in. And the kids sometimes got left with the sloppy seconds or an adulthood looked back and said, um, you know, 
my parents sound like great people. I wish I'd known them as well as the people, uh, the, the, the public knew them. Um, and then when I was in seminary, I became familiar with the work of Cameron Lee, who has done a lot of research into pastoral families. And um, we, we knew that we were taking on the, this path in life and we wanted to avoid some of the pitfalls of putting, putting um, you know, work over family uh, or whatever. And um, uh, yeah, and, and so, and, and maybe an added challenge for us in that is that we, we felt called to move to a, uh, a large urban neighborhood in a post-Christian, post-Christendom context. So we sort of had the deck stacked against us. Like we don't, we're out here kind of in no man's land in a pretty intense, violent, gang-ridden neighborhood. and and trying to do challenging ministry. And at the same time, wanted our kids to have a great experience, love where, where they live, learn to follow Jesus all at the same time. Mm. <laughs> so, so tell us a little bit about your family. Maybe we should have started there at the top. Tell us about your kids. Tell us about uh, where they're at now. And I mean, you talk about a lot in the book, but for those who have not read the book, just introduce us to, to the Scandret family. All right. We have three adult kids. Haley is our oldest and she is 27. She, um, she does some writing and she's been a research assistant on a number of projects. And our son Noah is 26 and he has a degree in physics and is currently looking for work and um, kind of trying to figure out how he wants to make his contribution in the world and um, what's a good fit and what's not a good fit for him. And our youngest, Isaiah, is 24. He has a degree in creative writing, and he is currently interviewing for um, a childhood dream job of working at a bookstore, mm -hmm. um, an independent bookstore, so that he can uh, take some time to also write, um, work on some writing projects. So they're, they're very much in that space of figuring out what they want to be about. Um, we're pretty lucky right now, especially in 2020 and the beginning of 2021, our oldest two live in the apartment that is below us. So they have their own place, but they're very close by. And our youngest uh, lives in a bedroom in the same flat that we live in. Mm. And um, I felt very lucky to have them nearby this year. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, in the book, you talk about, we talk about this idea of thriving families. You said a thriving family lives from a vision, carries a common purpose, finds rhythms, has a common story. I mean, a lot of the chapters unpack these, which is beautiful. As I read chapter one, where you discuss a thriving family lives from a vision, I wrote in the margin, I, I could see it right now, now in my book, what's ours? <laughs> which is great because I just want to affirm you as authors that I find myself being pushed as I'm reading throughout all the notes in the margins. And this is a really important discussion. It was for our family, I think for every family, especially pastors' families. And so why is it important that you believe that all families discuss this part A, and then especially in pastoral situations, why is this especially important for us? Well, we're, we're huge fans of um, defining what you want to be about together. So there's a few, a few things about that. When you can articulate what you want to be about together, 
it can help you to develop common priorities and make decisions about how you spend your time. There's so many good things that we could do with our time and energy, but we are finite beings. So it's important to explore what's most important for us to do together. Um, as an added benefit, when my kids were little, um, it helped me remember why I was doing all the little mundane things. I would mm -hmm. often tell myself something like, I'm giving this attention and care to the dishes, the food, the diapers, the story time today, because these people matter. And this is how I care and love them today. Um, because one of the things we wanted to do is create a loving, nurturing environment for people to grow up into whoever they were made to be. So connecting those little things that seem mundane to a bigger purpose was really helpful for me in those busy years. You heard when I introduced our kids that they're very close in age. So our, our seasons of childhood were very intense at times. Mm. Um, it can help you make choices about how, like conscious choices about how you spend your time. Um, if we do this, if we make this decision or that one, how does it help us to live more into the kind of family that we want to be together? Mm. Um, and if you have those big, those big decisions in life to make that come every so often, it's been really helpful for us to use some of that purpose language as a metric for. Uh, to run the decision through and see if a given decision um, would lean one way or the other as far as our family purpose. Mm. Um, we often do these kinds of things at our jobs. I'm guessing most churches have mission statements and mm. um, it helps people to move in a common direction and know what we want to be about together. Um, and so if we put that kind of care and time into our work, why not put the same care into the relationships that, where we're likely to have the most impact and where we spend a lot of our time? So um, we talk about these things together because um, when we each share in this decision making, when like when you and your wife talk about what your shared purpose is. And when you bring your kids into that conversation, people start to get excited about living this out. Mm. And um, we have buy-in then, rather than if you just came home one day and said, hey, I thought of a new thing. Here's our purpose statement as a family. It doesn't mean that we, ha we all have to agree on each piece of it as it comes together. But if we all feel like our voices are heard, we can more easily commit to that common those common values and that common trajectory. I think one of the um, one of the occupational hazards for being in pastoral work or ministry is that it's sort of a it's sort of a role or a job with an endless to do list. There's always more ways you could reach out in your community, more ways to care for people. And um, when when I was taking getting into the, the this kind of work. I really was feeling stretched between family life and uh, kind of ministry life. And one of my mentors at this time said, you should really think through what, what you want to be about as a family and let that deter, let that be the deciding factor in how much of your, your time and energy you give to your ministry, like mm -hmm. protect that. So um, 
I went home excitedly and said to Lisa, let's, let's revisit what, what our shared purpose is. I know we talked about this stuff when we were engaged and what kind of family we wanted to create, but now that we're having kids, I'm, we're both feeling really stretched. And so over a couple of nights, we uh, prayed and discussed it and came up with a long list of thing, values and things that are important to us. And then we thought, well, it'll be helpful if we can distill them down to five to seven statements. And I was so excited about having that articulated together that we, we, I printed out what we came up with and we put it on the uh, front door of our house. We put it up in the kitchen. We put it in the bathroom to remind us this is, this is what we're leaning into together. And it was um, five statements that have mostly stayed the same through time. We want to love God and people. We want to nurture healthy fa family dynamics. We want to use our gifts to serve. We want to offer hospitality and care, especially to those in suffering and struggle. And we want to live gratefully, sustainably, and creatively. Mm. And those have ended up being enduring kind of thing, guy, true north for us that guides us in how we make our decisions. And um, our kids were too young to participate in coming up with the family purpose statement. But along the way, we'd ask them, um, what, you know, what do you think our family is about? And they just about fill in mm. those our five bullet points uh, based on their observations of how we were living together, which were great. That's beautiful. Now I know you said that your kids live, you know, in the other room downstairs, the apartment below you. I'm not asking you to go get them, but I, I let's get on the theor the theoretical train for a moment. What if I were to ask them, what would it be like if you all didn't have a family vision? How do you think that might have impacted them or shaped them in their growing up years? I don't know if I can come up with a complete answer. I do think that um, I do think that having it added cohesiveness to our family mm. and some shared projects. So you heard that hospitality was a big value of ours. And when our kids were young, we would prime them to help us welcome people into our home, but it was usually people we knew. So we might tell them a little bit about the person and help them think of a question, or they would draw a picture, or they would, you know, some age appropriate way to welcome people. But when they became teenagers, it became their friends mm. that we welcomed, and they might tell us a little bit about their friend and what their friends needed and how we could care for them. And so um, that's been a that's been a long term project that continues. Mm. Um, we have a spare bedroom up here right now, and my daughter just asked me. She's got a friend coming from out of town. If the spare room would be available, and if we'd be willing to share it with her friend when when they come. So mm. um, it's yeah, it's given us some common projects mm. that have added to cohesiveness. I think, I think if we hadn't, uh, well, and by the way, we didn't always stay true to our vision, but what it would do is we'd get, we'd sometimes get distracted, hurried, busy. And then we go, we'd have to revisit and say, what do we really want to be about? Mm -hmm. And we'd return to the vision again. Um, I think if we didn't have it, I think we probably would have ended up, and I see this happen for many people, just following the urgencies and dictates of competing 
values and agendas in our culture. Maybe it's maybe life is about being a vocational success or making lots of money or having get, having your kids involved in as many activities as possible. And uh, the accumulation of experiences or material goods, and um, we would we would come to these decision points and go, does does that activity or does saying yes to that actually mm. help keep the integrity of what we really believe we are to be about together? Um, and we see a lot of families that we work with who they basically let one parent's job. And the amount of money that that person made, or where they or the size of house they chose to buy, or um, certain activities they wanted the kids to be involved in, suddenly become the center of the family's life, and the energy is going towards supporting that rather than um, maybe deeper values driving um, habits and behavior. Mm. Yeah, and the idea of busyness. I'm so glad you touched on this. You mentioned in the book you said busyness is the enemy of family thriving. Uh, I know that temptation is there for every parent. And I think you've probably answered this, but I, I want to drill down a little bit deeper because that idea of like, well, we're just supposed to sign our kid up for soccer and ballet. That's what everybody does. Well, we're supposed to get the home because we're in our mid thirties now. And so whatever that is for every pastor or every person, every family, there's also pastoral pressures that exist there on, on the busyness side of things. So uh, you mentioned using this as sort of your true north, your compass that you'd always come back to, what are some other ways, and maybe this is the wrong verb, but what are other ways to fight against or to push against the busyness factor that our culture is telling us, you should do this, you must do this? Now, what, is, what does that look like? How can having a family vision and, and purpose, as you write about in the book, help to fight against that busyness? Well, one of the things that was really helpful for us was to have some rhythms. And by that, I mean good habits that we create that allow our deepest values to shape the cadence of our lives. So these are pockets of time that happen, that we come to rely on, that we don't have to think about. Most people already have some of these, like bedtime routines with little kids or mm. um, holiday traditions or birthday traditions. Um, but we can choose rhythms that occur that that help us get at some of those deeper values. Um, some of the ones that were helpful for us were um, family dinners. We ate dinner most nights together as a family, and it was a really great place for conversation and family discussion. Um, we had something that our family called PPP night. We're from the Midwest, so that is pop pizza and popcorn. And we throw in a movie there too. And it was just every Friday night for a number of years, that's what we all knew to count on. And it was a great connecting time. It was just a fun um, way to relax together. Um, for a while, we would have scheduled hospitality nights where people knew this is the night of the week that we have people over. So you can expect that. Mm -hmm. Um when the kids were small, we had something called dad and kid night. At that time, I was, I was mostly in charge during the day of taking care of three very small kids who were very close in age. And in order to be a good parent, I needed to get some space. And Mark needed to connect with the kids. And so 
once a week, as soon as Mark was done with his work for the day, I was out the door to do whatever I needed to refresh. And he and the kids would have an awesome time together. And um, they would usually do something fun or silly or special. So even the kids really looked forward to that night. And if I was too slow getting out the door, they'd say, mom, it's dad and kid night. Aren't you leaving yet? <laughs> and so it worked for everybody. Um, and those rhythms have shifted and changed over the years as our family has grown. I would say though, that probably the most helpful rhythm that has been consistent all that time was a rhythm of having family meetings. Mm. And for us, a family meeting was a time for, we had two parts. One was the parenting partners, Mark and I, um, getting together to talk through the anything that we had concerns about at that time. So it could be scheduling things. It could be big decisions. It could be parenting issues. It could be our relationship. Uh, we had a list of subjects that we would rotate through. And then from that meeting, we would have a second meeting with the kids where we would talk about things that we needed their input on or that they needed to hear, um, that they needed to hear about. And what that did, we tried to have those weekly. Sometimes we would go a long time without having a family meeting. But um, the more often we would have those, the easier it would be for us to kind of match that what we want to be about in life with how we were actually living our life. And so it helped us align our time with that purpose agreement. Um, it made some space for making important decisions and problem solving. Um, and even making some fun decisions like where we might go for vacation or um, what we wanted to do for a special occasion. I helped us to stay on track with our goals and priorities, and it um, helped us to celebrate where we were seeing progress and growth in our family. Um, it also provided a venue so that when something really difficult happened in our family, we had a pattern of knowing how to communicate about things, mm -hmm. and everybody knew how we could go about this process. So uh, that was a really helpful rhythm and it helped us to um, kind of keep a check on that busyness thing. Um, I think when we first started doing this kind of thing, I had hoped that we would figure it out and then we'd have it down. And I remember talking to an older friend with kids and I said, when do you get this stuff figured out? And she just laughed and she said, once you figure it out, life changes, the needs of your family change. And you have to figure it out again. So we're not talking about a one size fits all or a perfection mode here. But what we're talking about is being intentional in ways that are um, helpful and satisfying to our families. Mm. Lisa, I just add one other kind of category of rhythms was um, we wanted our kids to be on the adventure with us and what we were discovering in terms mm -hmm. of our calling and ministry. And so um, I don't, I, maybe not every parish minister has this luxury, but um, I think it's worth aspiring to is I wanted our kids involved in as much as what I was doing as possible and have it be kid friendly. So 
when I was trying to get to know our neighborhood, the kids were in a backpack on my back or uh, hanging out at the local arts collective. Uh, we were doing meals with our unhoused neighbors underneath the freeway overpass once a month. And our kids would be right in there with us. Of course, we try. We found ways to help them feel safe and comfortable in those spaces. Um, they went on silent or contemplative treats, retreats with us, starting when they were eight, nine, and ten years old. Um, we so we just sort of whatever we were discovering as the best of what it means to live life with God, we wanted to involve them in as much as possible. A lot of people, when we mention this idea of a family meeting, will say. Oh, I do that sort of thing at work. Like I know how teams work. You need a common mission and vision, and then you have to do um, regular check-ins and make sure everybody knows their their roles and you assess and you reflect. And I say, well, you know in business, in your work life, how important that is. Your family is at least as important as any other team that you'd be on. So why not apply that wisdom to the to the center of your life? And I hear some people say, well, I have to do things with such great intention at work. When I'm home, I just want to relax and let things uh, unfold as they would. And I don't know that that always leads to the best outcomes. Mm. And I've I've talked to, um, if I, I was having a conversation a couple of years ago with someone who, if I mentioned their name, most people on your, um, on your podcast would know who I was talking about. But this person grew up with parents in high profile ministry. And they said, I don't remember any kind of intentionality in our home life about acknowledging God's presence or having meaningful conversations about what it means to live, live life well. Mm. All the energy was directed to, towards the corporate life of the church. And our family was sort of an, an ancillary aspect of that bit, that bigger um, project. And there was a bit of uh, us, uh, a bit of sadness and mourning and loss for this person as they shared mm. this with me. And um, I think that I think we might, maybe we're invited into something better where we we see we nest uh, vocational life ministry inside of the project of of, of becoming together. Mm. And and um, something we tried to convey in the book is that we and and we want to make it clear from the start. This wasn't. This isn't a book about parenting because I think that's the first place people go when they think about um, a book about family life. Is it's about how to how to parent individual kids. We, uh, you know, I, my background's in um, applied psychology and family systems theory, and so like our understanding that we brought to how we crafted our family was more about this is a. Sp- a relational space in which we're all becoming, not just the kids, but this is our path of discipleship and formation as well in in these relationships. So we're not just trying to download um, spiritual facts into our kids' brains. We're we're on the adventure, living, trying to live it out together. Mm. Yeah, and this idea of group discipleship together with your family. And and one of the things that I love about the both of you that I've known you these last 15 years, reading your stuff, peeking over the hedges, is the way in which you're not only creative, and you mentioned that as a family value, but the praxis orientation 
of discipleship. That's so important. And, and I love how throughout the book that you give activities. And, uh, and Lisa, you talk about it's not about perfection. You talk about your failures too, which we'll get to in just a second. But, but you give examples of victories and wins and also, hey, we didn't do it right. I'm, we're still in process. But, but I love how it isn't just great theoretical ideas. These are embodied knowledge, activities, experience, participation in the kingdom, but we do it together in the life that exists here. I mean, even the way you, you mentioned teaching your kids how to uh, memorize essential passages, but you also had hand motions and mnemonic devices and songs that you would teach them, uh, which sounds very Deuteronomy 6, the Shema to me, uh, which is awesome. Um, and I, so I know that every family has conflict. So let's talk about this because these are great principles. And a lot of people might be listening going, oh, the Scandrats are just perfect parents and they've got it all together. But let's talk about conflicts. Uh, and you said one of the elements um, that was important for you all was talking about your triggers to conflict. And, uh, and most of us want to avoid that, of course, but why is being aware of, and maybe this is back to your systems, family systems theory, Mark, but why is looking at the triggers of conflict within family so important? Uh, and, and if you're comfortable, Mark, I want you to talk about, if you could, the crabby daddy story yeah. that you talked about in the book. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Uh, let me let me first say I one one of the, some early feedback we got when we wrote the book is that many parents feel insecure about their role as parents and family members mm. and and basically it's like a minefield to even talk about family because people are just going to implicitly mm. feel judged by by awakening imagination for what could be and so we we like to say it's it's never too late or too early to approach family life with intention there are no perfect families and and a healthy family um uh, uh, you know a thriving family doesn't mean an ideal family where there's 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 no struggles no depression no no life issues um a thriving family is one where people have tools to navigate the challenges of life and they stay connected mm. in the midst of everything that can come at us and come out from within us in that. So here's my crabby dad story is um, when our kids were small, this stranger used to show up at our house unannounced, walk right into the apartment and start ordering people around, pick this up and why are these dishes here? And this stranger would totally wreck the vibe of our house. And we'd all be looking at each other going, who is this guy? Why does he have a think he has a right to come into our house? Maybe you're wondering why we didn't lock the front door. But um, eventually, the kids gave this stranger a name. They called him Krabby Dad. So obviously, they were talking about me. I had this pattern of getting exhausted coming home to, from, from my work for the Lord, coming home <laughs> and then raging at my family. Uh, my tone of voice was off. Um, most of my comments were negative and I would, I would, uh, it, it broke my heart that I was like this. Sometimes I would even in the moment say, God help me to be a loving partner and parent right now. And no dove flew down and landed on my shoulder or anything. <laughs> and around that time, I was, um, I, I just read Spirit of the Disciplines by Dallas Willard. And I was in a group where we, we were like, 
Um, I, I think one of the things Willard said, may have, maybe said in that book was like, your life is perfectly designed to get the results that you're getting. Like, it's not, whoops, I did it again, like Britney Spears' old song. <laughs> you, you manifest what you've been practicing and training for. And so I took some time and I said, I, where do I feel stuck? I feel stuck in this pattern and I don't want to be like this to my wife or my children. I don't feel good inside when I'm doing it. And this is, this is like the human condition, right? The, the false self, like rearing its head. There are things that I'd come to believe that are distorted views of reality. And there's habits that I developed that were not in coherence to the reality of the kingdom of God. And so uh, I did a little, I, I basically tried to reverse engineer Krabby Dad. What happens in the couple of weeks before Krabby Dad shows up at our house? And um, journaled it out. And I can just tell you, Krabby Dad would show up at our house when Mark Scandret would work too many hours in the day. Mm. Not take a proper Sabbath day uh, when he would um, when he'd he'd be moving so fast and trying to get so much done. He would um, fuel himself on lots of caffeine, not a cup or two a day, more like five, six, eight cups of coffee a day and um, sugary snacks. After all of that exhaustion, he would um, try and self-soothe at night with some more snacking and eating and drinking and maybe some binge watching of something stay up late, get up, get, get up just in time to rush off to the first meeting, not take time to exercise or to have a meditative or contemplative time in the morning. And then the cycle would just sort of continue and snowball. Mm. Well, why is this guy so busy? Um, because he operates from a script that says I'm only significant because of what I can achieve externally in the world and how others see me. Mm. And so that false script drives the development of habits that are, you know, less mm. than optimal. And Krabby Dad shows up. So I decided to apply some of these principles of spiritual formation to this issue and say, I'm going to, I'm going to commit to, to limit my work hours, decrease sugar and caffeine, uh, make sure I exercise, take a proper proper Sabbath and daily rehearse and meditate on truthful statements about my identity and worth in an early morning walk. And I, I told the kids and Lisa that I was doing this experiment. And a few months later, they said, hey, we noticed Krabby Dad is, doesn't show up as much as he used to. I mean, mm -hmm. we don't miss him. We're not glad to see him. But I think what it, it communicated to the kids is that, and, and this is maybe one of the values we've had in our family, mom and dad want to be appropriately honest with you about our own struggles to live in reality. Mm. And, and we want to model for you that we're, we're being honest about those things. And we're also uh, um, trying to pursue health and growth. Mm. And we want you to have appropriate self-awareness and accompany you in your journey of applying spiritual wisdom to the mm. areas of life that you struggle with. Oh, I love that. I mean, that's so Dallas Willard, right? I mean, the Willardian approach of taking everyday problems and see, you know, how do we have a community around us, quite literally our own family, that helps us work through it. You know, as, as Dallas would say, you know, if I'm mad at the pipe, it's never about the pipe. Like yeah. there's something deeper going on. Not, it's not the pipe. It's something in me. 
And so I love that story of Krabby Dad and how you invited humbly not only Lisa, but your kids into that process too. Um, that's that that may be revolutionary for some of our some of our pastors or leaders who've grown up expecting them to like be perfect. You know, maybe they come up a, a part of a church system that expects them to be the Bible answer man or woman in every particular context. And uh, and yet to invite their family into that process of their own growth and formation is so radical. And yet it's not. I mean, that's that's life in the kingdom. And I, I think, yeah, I think kids appreciate that because they definitely see when you're when you're operating out of your false self. Mm. <laughs> and and so it's helpful and healing. And I think you avoid some, not all, but some trauma mm. by saying. Papa just messed up. Mm. I didn't speak to you in a way that you deserve to be spoken to. You deserve to be spoken to with more gentleness, honor, and respect. Mm. Or uh, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Mm. And um, that 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 I think is uh, yeah really critical to developing a healthy relational space. And maybe Lisa would want to say more about how do you, how do you work through the conflicts. I was just going to add that I think the other thing it does is it models how we grow, how we change, how mm. we navigate mm. conflict. So if we're willing to do it, then our kids see that as a normal thing to do mm. rather than something exceptional. So, mm. um, so every family has conflict. We're not going to avoid having it all together. Um, I grew up being very good at avoiding conflict and it was a new mm. skill for me to approach it head, a, head on. Um, mm. I think growing up, we thought like, if we don't address conflict, it might just go away. We can just pretend it doesn't exist, but that's not really how it works. Like if we don't make those repairs, um, the hurt is still there somewhere. Mm. And so, mm. um, so one of my growth processes was to learn how to navigate conflict and how to make repairs. So um, we've worked to come up with a process, uh, in fact, a process that we could number with steps and everything about what we do when one of us fails to treat the other family members with, or any other person, actually, with love mm. and respect. and. Um, it's been a really good thing for us to have these processes um, as something we can turn to in those times. Um, I think knowing how to navigate conflict and make relational repairs is a skill that's desperately needed in our world. Mm. And um, I know that as pastors, you experience these things in your congregations all the time. Um, but our families can be really safe places to practice these skills and mm. learn how to improve on this. And so what we found helpful, this is our process. Um, and you might have another method that's just as effective. But when something happens in our family, whoever realizes that we're out of step is the first one to say, hey, we need to stop and talk. Mm. And um, Hopefully we can do it right away if we can't because of other things on the schedule or other people in our present. Um, we'll at least say, 
we'll at least set a time for when we could do that. Mm. And when we've done that, usually someone has been hurt or offended. Um, that person will first explain what, what they perceive to have happened and how they feel. And it's the other person's job to listen. And when they're done, then the person who was first listening can then speak and be listened to. Usually, um, you know, usually by the time we get to the stop and talk point, both of us, let's, let's say it's Mark and I, both of us have contributed to this need to, um, to work things out. Um, the third step would be to own our part in the event. Um, this would sound something like, um, Hey, I didn't, I didn't speak kindly to you to let you know what I needed right now. Um, I'm sorry. Um, Next, we would give and receive forgiveness. Will you forgive me for speaking harshly to you? Mm. And then the other person has the opportunity to say, yes, I forgive you. Or sometimes it's actually, we need to talk a little longer before I'm ready to, to go there. Um, once we've done that, we affirm love, remind each other, Hey, we're on the same team. I care about mm. you. Um, and explore solutions. Is there anything that we could do that would prevent this happening in the future? Um, wow, I like that. Explore solutions. What a powerful thing. So we don't just repeat the pattern. Let's be creative. Yeah. How like can we solve this in the future? Things we do that just become irritants and we could just do those things differently. Um, Sometimes that has to do with just household procedure, or um, it could be, hey, when you talk like that in front of our company, that was embarrassing to me. So next mm -hmm. time, let's make sure you make those requests in private, you know, mm -hmm. um, so that we can prevent things in the future. Now, I realize I just went through those steps really fast and made it sound like this nice, smooth trajectory. Once in a while, when we're really on it, it can go really smooth like that. Most of the time, though, this is something that we're practicing and we don't always um, we don't always listen as well as we as we would ideally want to. Or we have a hard time seeing what our part in the conflict was. Mm. Um, and so honestly, for our family, many times we have to bounce around between the steps until we can in a very messy way, work it out. Mm -hmm. um, but it's helpful to have some kind of process as anchors so that when you're in the middle of that feeling hurt or feeling conflict, I can, I can go, okay, where are we at and what, what needs to happen here so that we can move forward. Mm -hmm. Um, with the goal being that we return to loving, respectful relationship and each person feels seen and heard there. Um, so I find as we've traveled and we've spoke and we've done workshops on this, this is a really difficult thing for most people. Mm -hmm. uh, many of us weren't taught how to do this. We, we might've been taught say you're sorry and forgive your forgive your sister, but that's really a shortcut that isn't 
probably working through all the heart things. And so it's required for me a lot of work to be able to do this with Mark. Um, it's required a lot of work to help our children do this with one another as siblings, because their relationship is also very important mm. in the system of the family and mm. helping them navigate their relationship is an important piece of this too. And um, like Mark said, for parents to apologize to kids is also a really powerful thing. So mm. I would really encourage you if you don't have tools for this yet to um, think about what might be helpful. Um, if, if you look at our book, it has those steps in it. We've, we've had families tell us that they put those on a card and when they have a conflict, they put that card on the middle of the table so that everybody can go, where are we at here? Um, and it, it includes rules for a good fight. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's one of the things I loved about your book is the, the, the appendices were thick. And and not with with uh, you know obscure footnotes, but with practical questions, practices, assessments, uh, incredibly helpful. And one of the things that I just love the way that you've written, the way you speak, and even with your family, I ke- I keep in this interview hearing rhythms, tools, practices, skills. I mean, isn't that? I mean, that's in the life of in the way of Jesus, right? But you all are doing that together as a family. So rhythms, tools, skills, and practices. I love that you all are doing that. In some ways, I feel like this is a modern Christian family, um, even, modern family in America, but even Christian families miss out on so many of the rich traditions that we see in Jewish thought and practice, that you all are living that out uh, in such a way. So thank you for your book. It is such a gift. I mentioned that to my parents. I'm grateful to come from a, from a tradition that uh, took that very seriously in terms of parenting. And uh, I, my guess is, Mark and Lisa, that you're going to have future spouses, I hope, that one day in a generation will thank you because they've been raised up in families that took this seriously, and then it's passed on to future generations of families. So thanks for your book. Thanks for being on the podcast today. I'm so grateful. Would, would one of you be willing either a blessing or a brief prayer just to pray for pastors and their families? Would one of you be willing to just leave us with that here yeah. at the end? Sure. Yeah, I'd love to pray. Hmm. Lord, make our families places belonging and becoming. One in spirit, together in rhythm, united by a common story. Help us love and connect with love and respect, Living, learning to live sustainably, creatively, and running along in uh, paths of your kingdom and learning to use our gifts to serve and bless one another. Amen. Amen. 